All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and the single joke that made me laugh every single time Letter Kenny was anytime Rolton Stewart said, the dark web. <laughs> every time I laughed. I'm Ariana, a digital marketer, and um, I don't know, Pitter Potter, let's get at her. <laughs> it's a good, like, a good start. It is a good start. Um, it also just like sounds friendly. It trips right off the tongue. Yeah, it's not like you're like, come on, let's fucking go. Instead, let's fucking go. Yeah, it's pitter patter. Let's get at her. It's very gentle. Mm-hmm. You could say it to your friend, your grandma, your baby, your cat, your dog. <laughs> no one will be offended. <laughs> That's true. Um, so today we're talking about Letter Kenny. This is a commission from our friend Bailey. Thanks, Bailey. Thanks, Bailey. I still don't under- understand what spurred. I said something about breakfast food, and Bailey was like, have you watched Letterkenny? I don't understand the connection. But I'll have to ask him. I know I should have asked, but I didn't. Uh, anyway, Letterkenny is a comedy series created by Jared Kiso, who plays Wayne in the show, originally as some YouTube shorts called Letterkenny Problems. I did not watch Letterkenny Problems. I did not watch Little Kenny. Mm-mm. And I did not watch Shorzy. We were just talking about Letterkenny. Um the success of the shorts led to a full show being commissioned by Crave, which was then distributed by Hulu in the U.S. Um, the series follows a number of characters who live in the fictional Ontario town of Letterkenny. <sighs> Excuse me. I have a cold um, and I'm sniffly and my my breathing is not. <laughs> it's just harder to breathe. It's harder to breathe than normal. <laughs> um, anyway, Letterkenny, the town, is loosely based on Kiso's hometown of Listowel in Ontario. Um, anyway, it follows the town of Letterkenny, which is primarily divided into subgroups, the Hicks, consisting of Wayne, his sister Katie, and their friends Squirrely Dan and Derry, who all work on the farm, the Skids, consisting of Rold, Stewart, and two guys who ostensibly have names but almost never speak, mm-hmm. and the hockey players, primarily Riley and Jonesy. The first episode also introduces the Christians, who then rapidly disappear. <laughs> like, it's like the the Skids, yeah. the Hicks, the hockey players, and the Christians. Because he was we- married, right? I think he had a... Glenn, mm-hmm. he had a girlfriend. I don't think he was married. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters have a variety of conflicts and interactions through fast-paced, quippy, quotable, slang, and pun-ridden dialogue that has become the show's trademark. My introduction to Letterkenny was when I said, to be fair about something, and literally all of my friends simultaneously went, to, to be, be fair. fair. And I felt like everybody had been possessed by some kind of <laughs> It was maybe the single strangest thing I've ever had happen <laughs> to, to me. And I have had a lot of strange things happen to me. Um, Letterkenny is more about these interactions than it is about a series of narrative events. Even though it does have a plot and character development, these are typically background noise with the laughs coming first. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is small towns. Um Sadly, Letterkenny doesn't have a two-part name. We can break down into thematic anchors for the discussion like we did with American Gods and Mean Girls. Letter Kenny. We're going to talk about Letter, and we're going to talk about Kenny. Yep. And that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Because we don't have much to say beyond that. Um, We're going to start with small towns and the perception of them, because despite the fact that I grew up in rural Washington in a town smaller than Letterkenny, I checked the population. Not anymore, though, right? Now it is larger. Than oh wait, are you Kenny. talking about just the island? No. Oh, okay. I'm talking about the town. When we moved, it was twelve thousand. That's including that is including the island. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I think it was a town of of two thousand. 
That makes sense. Um, by the time Mary got here, it was a bit bigger. Was 13. Yeah, including the island. Yeah. And um, now the town itself is about seven. 7,000? Yeah. Oh, just the town? Just the town. Interesting. Um, so b- despite the fact that I grew up in rural Washington in a town that is smaller than Letterkenny, which is a completely in a completely different country, Letterkenny and its exaggerated people are so familiar to mm-hmm. me because I guess a small town is a small town is a small town even in different countries. Like, yeah, like truly. Yeah. I I've, like I recognized these people. <laughs> um I don't want to talk too much about my upbringing specifically, but there are a few things that stood out to me as very familiar. Um, the stereotypical groups, the subversion of expectations within those groups, the diversity of the types of people, not racially, but personality and belief wise, um, within categories we usually see as static. So when I'm thinking about where I grew up and who I grew up with, there's a mixture of stereotype and subversion in pretty much every person, which like, of course, duh, right? Of course, not everybody is pure stereotype. Um, but I think there's a truth in how Letterkenny's characters, who are very much stock characters with a little extra seasoning, are constructed. <laughs> Wayne dresses exactly like my grandpa, like exactly like him. And my grandpa also grew up on a dairy farm. Like that is, I see Wayne, and I see he doesn't act like my no. <laughs> Wayne doesn't act like my grandpa. Mm-mm. But I see Wayne, and I see my young grandpa. It's so true. Um, Wayne and my grandpa are extremely different people. You would not mistake their personalities for one another's. But there's also something about the small town men that I know that is similar outside of just that like uniform, the farmer uniform, which is this engagement with a various, very stereotypical idea of masculinity, this idea of like stoicness, which we can talk more about later, an emphasis on manual labor, physical strength, and so on that's actually accompanied by a deep and abiding care. Um, providing for the family is a responsibility, not something to be rewarded. You lend a hand to your neighbors, you be kind, etc. Like these are small town men characteristics that I see reflected in the small town men I know and in Letterkenny, even though Letterkenny is an exaggerated stereotype and not actually literally like anybody I know. I think the one that I was like, oh, I've seen that person is um rolled in the um overalls mm-hmm. and but still being like a druggie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that one's really yes. specific. Yes. Um, this care mindset can go too far. I just really briefly that idea of of male responsibility to care for, you know, to care and provide for people can go too far. Some people interpret providing for the family as not letting women do anything, for example. That's not what I'm talking about, though. In Wayne and in many of the small town men I know, particularly those in my family, I see a specific idea of responsibility that is compassionate first. It is less about providing because you are a man and it is your biological imperative and more because you are part of a community, the family unit, the neighborhood, the town, etc. And that's what we owe to one another. Like there's this there when the town was smaller, it's much larger now, but when the town was smaller, I'm not exaggerating when I say everybody knew everybody. Uh, when we were in high school and middle school, I guess, even when it got bigger, it was very much like Oh, I had your brother. I had your mom in my mm-hmm. class. Like that was very, very. I'm sure my sister got it all the time. Very common yeah. to be like, I had your mom or your older sister, or brother in my class, um, because the teachers stayed there forever. Yeah, everybody knew each other or like was at least familiar with them to some degree, and there was this sense of like owing something to one another because we lived in the same community and we're part of like the same the same group. 
we looked out for one another. If somebody was, you know, having a hard time with their family, somebody else's family would help. You know, like if there was a a crisis of some kind, somebody would step in to help. I mean, certainly and they get written on the barn. Yeah, certainly in my in my family, a lot of my family members worked in service, like were volunteer, um, volunteer fire department, volunteer paramedic, like um, so they knew everybody and they would, you know, reach out to help beyond whatever they were actually meant to do as neighbors. Like everybody knew each other and everybody participated in everybody's lives. Do you remember when Walmart tried to come in yes. to the town? Yes. And everyone was protesting? Yeah. That shit didn't come in. I can't remember if I talked about this, talked about that in this outline, but that's I don't okay. think I saw that. I, I can't remember if I did or not. If we'll come up again later if I did. Or when there when when where my mom worked was like, we're buying all of our desserts from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, you're not. Yeah. (laughs) There is a real sense of community, like among people in small towns that like, I felt was really represented in Letterkenny. Mm -hmm. Um, This comes up in no uncertain terms in the show with the repeated refrain of when a friend asks for help, you help him and, and similar ideas. There's a sense of community in small towns that can be really stifling and irritating. It is no, it is not, you know, it's not for no reason that I don't live there anymore. Yeah. Um, or never dated anybody. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not for no reason that I don't live there. And um, that's not to say that small communities are like great. No, no, no. That's exactly what I'm, yeah. that's what exactly what I'm getting at. They're, they can be stifling. They can be irritating. Um, they can be closed minded, all of those kinds of things. Oh, you did talk about Walmart. Oh, I did. Okay. Oh, well, not necessarily how we were talking about it, but okay. I do see it on there. Um, but but there is also this real sense of dedication to one another in small communities. Um, and I think about it a lot when I think about my hometown banding together, despite a bunch of differences to not allow Walmart to build, like despite the fact that we were a community of vast income disparity, a community, a community of vastly different political affiliations, education levels, all of these different, like, um, demographic differences, the town really came together to say, absolutely fucking not, yeah. we will not have a Walmart here. Yeah. Um, because it would destroy the oh, small town yeah. feeling. Now they have some stuff in there that's questionable, but... Yeah. And, and like, I hate, to, I hate to say it, but, like, the town has grown. Not We don't know each other there anymore. Yeah. We don't know who each other are, and therefore there is much less sense of who the community is. Despite, you know... So this town would not allow a Walmart in to build in town, but the town I live in now, as well as a nearby town are larger and more disparate with less of community identity. And both have been radically changed by the incursion of corporations like Walmart. Yeah. I mean, I live in a town. I live in a town. I guess it's just, I don't know if it's a city or a town. No one knows what that is. Um, I live in like a suburb of a town, but the town is a farming one mm-hmm. and there's like a lot of areas in which like they've really held on to this is farming area but because I live in this really specific spot of it they're like oh let's put all our industrial stuff there yeah. they've they've it kind of feels like they've gotten the best of both worlds and that kind of feels bad yeah um again I, I want to stress that this, this doesn't mean that small communities are inherently good no um there is an in-group and out-group mentality that can be both good and bad that we'll talk more about later but one of the things that i think letter kenny does quite well is to subvert the expectations of small town people specifically the expectations that they are mean stupid regressive and incurious and the sense that all those things are tangled up in poverty 
Um, individuals may be any of those things, of course, but there is a pervasive attitude, especially among white liberals, that these things are true in an undeniable way. Uh, what I'm leaning toward, which we'll discuss more later, is that small towns are not defined by these characteristics, even if they contain them. And I think part of what Letterkenny does as a show is demonstrate that, though it is a bit removed from the U.S. because it is a Canadian show. Like, I think it's still... I think it still gets that across. We mm -hmm. have this perception of people in small towns as like inherently conservative and bigoted and incurious and all those kinds of things. Um, but the reality is different. Like there may be elements of truth to the stereotype, but that doesn't mean it is inherently true across the board. Our town was secret conservatives dressed as liberals. <laughs> yeah. And but like if you look at voting history, it's not really. Yeah, I looked. Mm, I was curious. I was looking at voting records. It's not. Um, what you see in Letterkenny does come from a different, albeit similar culture to ours. And I think there is overlap, even if we're talking about two different countries with different histories and different social values. Canada is often seen as our like nicer and more progressive counterpart here in the US, which is partially true, but also not completely true. It's always more complex than that. Yeah. Anyway, I approached this outline as somebody from a small American town that has a significant amount in common with Canada, including proximity. I yeah. grew up with Canadian TV rather than American because my antenna based <laughs> TV picked up Canadian channels better than the Seattle stations. Um, and some academic writing about masculinity in small towns because I struggled to find much that was specifically about Canada. Sorry, small American towns. And people just drive to Canada like yeah. on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Um, not all of this is going to apply. Like not all of the, the, the stereotypes about like American masculinity will apply neatly to Canada. Um, but I think there are some connections to be made. So this is a quote from men in place, trans masculinity, race and sexuality in America by Miriam Abelson. Uh, yet the whiteness of the cowboy is popularly constructed in opposition to the native American, the Chinese railroad worker and the Mexican bandit. In contrast to the Southern good old boy and the Midwestern farmer, the cowboy was more in direct contact with Native Americans. This heroic and conservative stylistic image has spread globally. I got distracted. <laughs> has spread globally as a symbol of traditional masculinity, even in urban spaces through country music bars. Donning the cowboy aesthetic and attending events like rodeos in the 20th century became a way for men to reclaim traditional manhood at a time when their masculinity was threatened by changing work, as well as competition from women and racialized immigrants. The cowboy is the pr predominant image of masculinity in the West, but there are other localized versions such as the Lumberjack in the Pacific Northwest. Or, in our small town, um, lawnmower races. <laughs> Did you? I went to a logging show when I was a kid. It was crazy. So it's lawnmower races. Yeah. Um, so again, obviously this passage is about the US rather than Canada, but I think understanding the roots of where the image for rural masculinity here come from can also give us some insight into what rural masculinity looks like in Canada. I mean, they're both Western civilizations. Yeah, 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 for sure. Within close proximity. Rural is maybe one of the hardest words for me to say. Rural. It's right up there with femininity. So I'm really femininity. glad that this is not, uh, this rural, is not femininity. rural femininity. <laughs> but that would be very interesting. It would be. It would be. I know significantly less about Canada's history with racial oppression than I do the U.S.'s, so I'm not going to pretend that I can speak with any kind of authority about that. So I'm just going to talk about the U.S. instead. So I know there's a lot of the tension between, like, um, indigenous and native people. Yeah. Um, I, it is interesting to me that Abelson in this passage talks about the whiteness of cowboys as defined in opposition to other races, which I think is true, especially because there's a whole history of black cowboys that's been systematically erased from our history. Mm -hmm. According to Smithsonian Magazine, one in four cowboys were black, which is a significant amount. 
Um, with the cowboy being one of the one big source of our sense of masculinity in the U.S., we can then see how whiteness and masculinity are tangled together. Cowboys are also almost mythological figures of masculinity as they represent the sort of lone wolf against the world, duty and heroism figure, regardless of the fact that most cowboys probably like worked on farms doing a job you know mm -hmm. i don't know anything about cowboys really but like i assume that most of them were not you know clint eastwood in the good the bad and the they upgrade. probably smell bad they did probably smell bad uh, sweaty <laughs> but the important thing is that the connection between the sort of stoic mythic figure of a cowboy and rural masculinity which we actually talked about a little bit in our american gods episode the idea mm, of, from the town right well of shadow specifically oh. having this sort of rural masculinity based on the cowboy archetype um Men in cities may not feel as compelled by this figure because there are different models of masculinity there. There's businessmen, for example. Like, that is a model of masculinity that is acceptable in a city that is not acceptable. Like, a, a businessman in a rural setting would be seen a as soft. Yeah. yeah, or feminine. Yeah, whereas in the city, it's, like, dominant. Yeah, it's, like... Like, a tech like, bro mm -hmm. in, a, in a rural small town would be a pansy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um... So despite the fact that, you know, men in cities, men in cities may not feel as compelled by this kind of figure, um, but this is a pervasive image in rural spaces, like even judging from Letterkenny in spaces outside of the U.S., but within the sphere of Western culture. Wayne is not a cowboy, like specifically, like he's not a quote unquote cowboy, but his masculinity is informed by some of the things tied up in the in the cowboy image, such as duty, rural living, his clothing, his stoicness, etc., even though that image is largely associated with America. We can blame this on practicality. Wayne dresses like a farmer slash cowboy because his clothes are practical for a farmer slash cowboy, right? Like, it makes sense. Um, on American cultural saturation, we are neighbors to Canada. Our media is inescapable. You cannot fucking get away from us if you try. Um, or on any number of other things. But I think it's quite clear that Wayne visually has something in common with the American idea of a cowboy and the associated masculinity, even if he is Canadian. I think that while this not might, this might, not be a cowboy specifically, but an American masculine person in which they mentioned once and thankfully never mentioned again is Joe Rogan. Yeah. Joe Rogan, who's fucking awful. They mentioned it once early on and then never mentioned it again. They're like, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. I bet they regret he's that. Guy. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, but he was, he's, he exudes what, what a yes. lot of people think masculinity mm -hmm. should be. And he's like a hunter and all these things. Yeah. He um, sucks. Yeah. Not because of that, but because he's just a bad person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that idea of associating Wayne with the cowboy and associated masculinity kind of brings us to another question. If Wayne can be associated with cowboys, which are also associated with misogynistic and racist behavior, do we assume the same of Wayne? Um, I would argue that we do. There is the fear. <laughs> uh, and that's part of the reason why the show goes out of its way to show that while he may not be the most progressive man in Letterkenny, he's also not the stereotype of a farmer. He may be uncomfortable with the idea of having a finger up his butt, which I would argue among most men stems from having his masculinity threatened by queerness. I would 100% agree. Um, but he also stands up for the queer people in his community, whatever their expression is. The first episode notwithstanding, we'll get to the pilot later. Um, he may have some hangups, but he's not the type of small town guy that's hateful and bigoted. He's not out here with the fucking tiki torch, right? Yeah, he's not gonna spray paint a swastika in your yard, which has happened like the first week I moved to yeah. our small town. Um, that's an important distinction to make. Not I, our our lawn. Not I want to make that. I want to make that clear. Yeah. 
Um, that's an important distinction to make. And I think the show makes it abundantly clear that whatever the stereotype of small town people may be in Canada or in here in the US, it's not applicable to the main characters of Letterkenny. And I do think that that is an important choice to make because, to be honest, there is no fundamental difference between something like Larry the Cable Guy's Get Her Done and Pitter Patter Let's Get At Her. Those are the same. They mean the same thing. It's true. Um, Larry the Cable Guy is weird. (laughs) That is one of Larry the Cable Guy's like more tasteful quotes. But nonetheless, if we can set political affiliation aside for a moment, difficult, I know, but bear with me. Um, I would just like to put make a point in this that his. Larry the Cable Guy's accent is fake, and he went to a private school in West West Beach, Florida. Yep. Letterkenny is not, this is my controversial statement, Letterkenny is not more highbrow than Larry the Cable Guy. It might even be worth noting that Larry the Cable Guy did not endorse Trump for president, even though he is a Republican. He voiced support, he very vocally voiced support for Gary Johnson over Trump. Um Larry the Cable Guy has made racist, sexist, homophobic jokes in the past, but that is not the reason for his association with lowbrow humor. It's the costume of a blue-collar Southerner. I am certainly not a person who likes Larry the Cable Guy. I fucking hate stand-up. I'm sorry. I like him as Mater in Cars. Oh, I didn't know that's who he was. Let me double-check that. You could certainly be right. Um, So I'm certainly not a person who likes Larry the Cable Guy, but in looking through some of his jokes so I could at least be mildly informed when I was going to run my mouth... I was surprised to see that sometimes the object of the joke was unclear. So, for example, he had one joke that said something like, I hate immigrants. They don't speak no good English, which is bad. It is him and us made her. Oh, okay. Like, that's not a good joke, right? I'm not super enthusiastic about it. But also the joke isn't about immigrants, but rather about the persona of Larry the Cable Guy himself, working class, blue collar, southern, etc., That doesn't make the joke good. It makes it classist. (laughs) But it shows that something even as reviled and seen as lowbrow as Larry the Cable Guy can use wordplay to tell a multi-layered joke. And that's why I don't want to paint Letterkenny as inherently more highbrow simply because its people are progressive. It's if you took Seinfeld and pushed Larry the Cable Guy (laughs) together. Yeah. And took out a lot of that racist, homophobic shit. Yeah. What's interesting about this to me is that I think part of the appeal of Letterkenny is that, in later seasons at least, it largely eschews the prejudices associated with this kind of working class comedy, but the type of comedy is the same. Larry the Cable Guy's comedy frankly sucks and is racist, (laughs) etc., but Letterkenny having more progressive values doesn't mean it's actually better to me. That's not necessarily a reflection of quality. It just doesn't feel as bad listening to. Exactly. It just doesn't make you feel like shit. Um, It's really, truly hitting the bare minimum. Yeah. To me, it just proves that comedy about working class rural people does not have to be bigoted to be true and funny. I think this is an important conversation, not necessarily about comedy specifically, but I know you brought this up a lot just in conversations we've had of that small town rural people being conservative and stupid. Mm -hmm. And I think that this goes hand in hand with it of like just because you're somewhere else or doing something differently doesn't mean that people who live in these small towns are all voting for Trump and right. are really conservative. Yeah. Um, it happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. And one's not better than the other. Yeah. So this is a quote from The Surprising Quality of Canadian Comedy, a primer for Americans by Aidan Hales, who writes, Despite the increasing urbanization and diversification of the population, Canada has remained, in the cultural industries financed by the government, a rural or at most small town country, 
populated almost exclusively by white people, surrounded by natural majesty. Where cities must be mentioned, they're always in contrast to the clean, pristine, and purifying presence of Canada's vast preserves of nature. You know, the places where those dangerous Americans can't influence <laughs> us with their hip-hop, reality TV, and guns. And so I think this is this is part of the reason why Letterkenny is successful, minus the hip-hop bit. There certainly is hip-hop in, in Letterkenny. Yeah, sure um, is. The common concept of a rural American is one who is like Larry the Cable Guy, right? Like, if you just picture somebody who lives in you know, bumfuck nowhere, America, who is like the worst kind of American, you're going to picture Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, their cousin. Their cousin. Yeah, that comes from, that lives in America. Yeah. Yeah. The common concept of, so the common concept of a rural American is one who is like Larry the Cable Guy. Lowbrow, racist, misogynist, homophobic, worships guns, loud, disrespectful, etc., if we define ourselves in opposition to other things, so rural versus urban, lowbrow versus highbrow, etc. Sorry for the cough drop sounds. So if we define ourselves in opposition to other things, rural versus urban, lowbrow versus highbrow, etc., rural Canadians have multiple axes to define themselves, namely not urban and not American. And I think that makes a lot of difference in how the show plays out because it's embracing its Canadian identity and what it means to be rural and working class there, not what it means to be rural and working class here, which often defines the stereotype because our media is so pervasive. Um, And this leaves space for Letterkenny to not just be rural comedy, but specifically Canadian rural comedy, which is defined in opposition to American rural comedy in its most popular form. Letter, letter, letter the cable guy Larry the cable guy the blue collar comedy tour etc like there is a defined idea of what rural comedy is in the US and it is often bigoted I think that I know you talk about it later but uh, when they bring in the alt right mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that really explains it very yeah, yeah. well like we are not this yeah, yeah absolutely this is America uh, do you have anything else to say about um well, it's funny because it's not just America. They had those big lockdown protests, the the truck convoy. Yeah, the truck convoy. Yeah. Um, and then we had a friend who uh, family lived in Canada, and she would tell us all the time they're just gun toting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think America's culture is so pervasive that things like Trump and stuff like that will have supporters in Canada. Mm-hmm. In Australia, I think particularly yeah. has a lot. Um. So yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about the small town? No, I well, think I, it's inescapable. We're going to talk more about yeah. it. But. I think it's interesting about small towns is there's this idea, maybe not in Canada, at least, but in America, probably a lot of people within small towns feel like small towns are not common, mm-hmm. that they are, oh, you know, I'm from a small town. You wouldn't understand. Most people live in the city. But when you look at the map and you look at where people, most people are from smaller towns. Well, I think, I think it has to do, like, you got to think about it in terms of population density. So like cities have a lot more people living in them. Yes. But there are a lot more small towns than there are cities. Yes. And I think that's why small town life type of things really resonate with a lot of people because there's more people living that small town or medium town Mm -hmm. life um, than, others realize yeah we talked about it i can't remember which one it was but we were talking about how uh how so many people always feel um like whatever we were talking about relatable when they live in a smaller town and um i wonder what that was i can't remember what it was a while ago but i actually think about it often about how small town medium town non-city life is more common than people who maybe 
live in those towns and want to feel like I'm a small town. My way of life is being threatened. <laughs> yeah. And when really. Yeah, it's being threatened by Walmart. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and either your small town brings Walmart in or it doesn't. And that kind of tells a lot about what's going on. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about wordplay. Shall um, we? Should we shall. <laughs> Wordplay and rapid fire jokes are probably the thing that sets Letterkenny apart from most most other sitcoms. Uh, like most sitcoms, Letterkenny is about a group of characters responding humorously to a series of situations. There you have the worst, the the most boring explanation of anything having to do with comedy you ever heard in your life. <laughs> um, but its approach to humor is to just totally forget realism in favor of hammering in as many jokes, examples of wordplay, and so on as as is physically possible. I would. This became a little tiring for me especially i'm someone who watches a lot of things um at once and i couldn't do that because i got really sick of the openings Mm -hmm. um because sometimes they felt like they went on too long i think that they're really good but don't binge these yeah (laughs) at least for me um the show is like being pelted with jokes that could work against the show if it wasn't so cleverly written, but yeah. the wordplay is so much fun that even I can largely forgive literally 10% of a single episode being <laughs> devoted to riffing on a single joke. What I cannot forgive is 10% of an episode being slow motion. Just get on with it. Or farts. Or listen, I can't with the potty humor. I cannot do it. It got better. It did get better. Once, it was, once Shorzy got his own show. It was bad in the first two to three seasons it was rough no i think the third season there was not no jokes and i'm and your response i think was i bet someone made a bet with yeah i sincerely (laughs) believe there was one season without a single fart joke and i'm sincerely betting someone made a bet that they couldn't get through a whole season especially since i think the next season they bring back bring not bring back but start talking about fart book Mm -hmm. and i think it was the dark web (laughs) anyways (laughs) um so I want to read it. This is a quote from Letter Kenny, an undiscovered Canadian gem by Hugh Sanders. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation of that first name. Um, an even better comparison, though, would honestly be Shakespeare. It's always a mucky business pulling out that particular comparison. And usually it says more about the pretensions of an author than anything else. But if any of what television's produced recently has earned it, it's Letter Kenny. 400 years of nigh reverence in the school system has obscured the fact that the bard was no stranger to writing smut when people where people got into arguments about who'd fucked who, nor to writing hot-blooded, dirty-minded young men. Quite apart from its main power trio, Letterkenny has an exemplary pair of these in the utterly inseparable Riley and Jonesy, two hockey bros whose relationship would probably be less unusual if we actually saw them kiss. I really thought that they were going to be together. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Let them kiss each other. Um, They are friends outside of it. Good. All of them seem to be really good friends outside of the show, and it's very cute. Good. Um, I actually think the Shakespeare comparison would make some people balk. Like, they would be like, what? Um, but Shakespeare remains famous today for a reason. He was a master at distilling plots down to their rawest... Rawest rural femininity. He was a master at distilling plots down to their rawest, most relatable and impactful components, despite whatever differences there might be between the viewer and the character. And his wordplay was incredible. The man- Wasn't he really dirty, too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a lot of people talk about Shakespeare as this inscrutable thing for snobs, but the people who saw Shakespeare plays were everyday people. The language of his plays was certainly heightened, as all dialogue and fiction is to some degree, but it was understandable to the people of the day. It was yeah. not highbrow. It could be. We just don't speak like that anymore. Exactly. It wasn't highbrow. It was just art. 
And it was art rife with dick jokes, wordplay, <laughs> puns, lewdness, etc. Because people were still people back in Shakespeare's day as well. I was watching Hamlet with my husband, and he was he was baffled by the amount of lewdness it's in that play. It is a horny play. Um, he's a horny guy. He's a horny guy. Um, I think you could argue that maybe Letterkenny doesn't hit the emotional beats that Shakespeare does. But setting that aside, I think there is comparison to be made. Much as Shakespeare is hard for a member of the out group, i.e. us today, to read, Letterkenny is legible primarily to people who are part of its culture. Canadians, but also more specifically rural Canadians and hockey players, etc. You can learn to appreciate it despite it not being written for you as the audience. But that doesn't change the fact that it is written for that specific audience, which requires some specialized knowledge to understand in that sense the shakespeare comparison totally works for me it totally works it really is kind of written in its own dialect that is not written for the ease of our consumption it's written for the people who understand it yeah um this is a quote from letter letter kenny loves a good abecedarian by caitlin cowan um, with their daily chores, jobs, or duties, sorry, while their daily chores, jobs, or duties might seem utilitarian at times, the way the citizens of Letterkenny speak hints at their deep and abiding enjoyment of language. There's nothing thrifty about the way they talk to each other. They take long, circuitous routes to make a point. They even occasionally burst into a brief song because it feels good, <laughs> because it connects them, and because it is funny as hell. It gives them pleasure. Mishearings, lengthy echoes, and puns litter the dialogue of the characters, which highlights how hilarious, intelligent, and human they all are, even their apparent differences. And that's what the best art does. In short, they're collaborating in an art form, the art of language and conversation. I think this is where the show's uniqueness really shines. Yeah. Because we have because we have a stereotype of rural people as essentially stupid and uneducated, we also assume they don't have much to say. And what they do have to say is probably ignorant. These are just assumptions that we being like especially white liberals. Yeah. Um we just assume that whatever they have to say is ignorant or stupid or useless. I would put that, I would say the one person who does that is the coach. He's so stupid. And oh, absolutely. He's dumb. Just sucks. Just sucks. <laughs> and then there's that one weird scene, I don't know if you remember, where they go to his house and he's like, they're about to leave. And he's like, I'm coming, Barb, to the, I'm coming to the tub. Like, he's talking to her. Yeah. I was like, is she alive? Weird. And there's all these conspiracy theories. Weird. Um, Letter Kenny completely resists the idea that small town rural people would have nothing interesting to say. Um, this is an extremely talky show to the point that one of the most repeated shots in the show is just slowly panning along <laughs> the main characters as they sit largely without moving in front of the produce stand. <laughs> the moment I noticed that how they do that shot, I was like, this is so weird. I like cannot stand to look at this anymore. I didn't think about that. Next time you watch an episode, just watch the like it's just this extremely slow pan oh, across people. Um, their characterization comes through in posture, voices, and word choice rather than through like moving around at, or even typical character development. Like they do, ha like Wayne in particular acts a lot, or Jared Kiso acts a lot through the position of his body. Like you know the Wayne stance, yeah. Um, but at the same and like Gail is another great example. Yes. Her her acting is very physical. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not like it's not subtle. <laughs> There's no subtle no. to it. Um I think centering conversation and wordplay does something really interesting. Rather than making the show about the writer's cleverness, it's about the character's cleverness, right? The show is you can get when you look at something like Joss Whedon, right? 
His characters are often delivery vehicles for yeah. quips. As opposed that's to a good, that's a good one. As opposed to characters themselves, I believe that the characters of Letterkenny are clever. Yeah, I believe it. It's each one is clever in their own way. Yes, um, except maybe the coach. Except the coach and McMurray. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I would even you put McMurray above the coach. So it, it reads to me as being about the character's cleverness as opposed to the writer's cleverness. It's not clever situations or even solutions to problems. It's endless wordplay, which centers the characters and their intelligence over whatever conflict might be happening. That's an interesting choice, given the perception of the various groups depicted in Letterkenny. Hicks are generally seen as unintelligent. The skids being into drugs are also likely to be seen as unintelligent. And while the hockey players are not necessarily intelligent in the same way that the other groups are, most of them, largely excluding Riley and Jonesy, (laughs) are still pretty quick-witted. Right? Like yeah, uh, what's the one that looks like they're from Fast and the Furious? The, yeah, Joint Boy? Yeah, Joint Boy. And the other one that Bob told me looks like he's from 24. They're, uh, apparently, he looks exactly like another <laughs> character from something else. Um, Riley and Jonesy, instead of being intelligent, are sort of misguided but decent guys as the story goes on. I es- love them. Especially because they are the ones often saying, I don't think that's PC. I don't think that's PC, buddy. <laughs> you said it. Yeah, they're sometimes wrong about whether or not something is PC. Um, but, but that is what makes it really endearing. Exactly. But even them being incorrect is a form of wordplay, right? Yeah. Because they, it usually results from the misunderstanding of how a word is being used. <laughs> like, even, even though they are not the most intelligent co- people on the show, they mishear a word or they misunderstand the use of a word and turn that misunderstanding into a joke in itself. Yeah. Um, God, they're funny. This is another quote from Letter Letter Kenny Loves a Good Abysidarian by Caitlin Cowan. Can you tell me what the fuck an abysidarian is? An abysidarian is is a type of poem in which um, every, it's either alliteration, so always align apples astrologically. Whatever. Yeah, sounds right, sounds right. Or you progress from letter to letter, so always always be closing. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. so this is a quote from that from that essay. A shared lingo makes us feel most at home in the world, makes us feel okayest in the deepest soul sense. In-jokes do this. Nicknames, local slang, family sayings. And in the simplest, most astute way, using the alphabet as the backbone of your speech clues everyone who uses the alphabet in it. Who uses the alphabet in it makes insiders of all of us. And so when Letterkenny teaches us how to parse its language in season one and then gives us an abecedarian as it's season two cold open, it feels like a red carpet being rolled out for us for the initiates. Welcome home. Because American and Canadian audiences know this alphabet and can predict its moves, we're endeared to the wild ass diatribe that Kiso treats us to almost immediately. Who doesn't have a soft spot for the ABCs? When you share the same alphabet, hearing an abecedarian feels like being clued into an inside joke, even if the speaker is a stranger. So I think the first season of Letterkenny is where the off-color jokes, which we'll discuss more later, are at their most prevalent. Mm -hmm. There's a degree to which I don't want to criticize the show too much for that because, like I said, I came from a small town. I think it might be dishonest to portray the average small town as being bastions of progressiveness because they aren't. Yeah. Um, well, and I also wonder how much of it is like a production company be, like pushing it, being like, people won't don't want that. People mm-hmm. want this, you know? Yeah. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you look at smaller towns. Small towns are tight-knit intended as like outsiders, so outsiders don't move in. People who don't fit in move out and so on until you have an increasingly insular and more likely white group. Yeah, There's nothing intrinsic about that, but it is a cycle. It is like a self-fulfilling cycle. So anyway, 
The first season leans more on the homophobic and misogynistic humor. It's quippy and quick-witted and fun, but it still is homophobic and misogynistic. Literally, one of the moments that made me laugh is a homophobic joke from the pilot. One of the hockey players asks Derry if his onesie comes in men's, and Wayne replies, oh, I think you come in men enough for the both of us. The joke is, the hockey players are gay, and that's bad. But the wordplay is really fun, (laughs) and I laughed. I contain multitudes. Um, I think that's not PC, buddy. That's not PC, buddy. Um, But as the show goes on and we start to get to know the characters better, that humor softens. It's never gone, but it's not as prevalent. And with what Cowan says in this piece, that's really interesting. The first season establishes Letterkenny as what it is, and the second season, through the abecedarian wordplay, welcomes us into it, and the humor becomes more inclusive. I think that there was, um, I think there was some, like wanting to balance out things that they did. And I think they did that well. I agree. Like, I think one of them may have been Rosie Mm -hmm. of like having Gail be the only black woman on there and being a very specific. We'll talk about that later, but um, bringing Rosie on who team Rosie over anyone else um, and just being like really normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Rosie. Anyways, I think that they tried to balance out some of the shit that they had done and they did it well. Yeah. Like, I just think it's so interesting that the first season is, like, the most off-color, and then they begin the second season with an abusidarian. That's when <laughs> that's when they have the long discussion about winter, where oh. Derry's just firing off letters, and um, Wayne responds with, like, a statement uh, with an abusidarian. And, um, and I think that there's something true to what Cowan says there, that, like, the first season establishes Letterkenny for what it is. The second season rolls out the, the red carpet for you and says, you're part of this, too. You can get it because you understand the alphabet. Um, I don't think the characters of Letterkenny are particularly well-rounded, but they are interesting and consistent. And I think rather than being well-rounded, they are intentionally subversive of your expectations. Squirrely Dan is maybe the <laughs> best example of this. He has arguably the most lower class appearance in that he is not only wearing clothes typical of a manual laborer, but he also has a bushy beard and is fat. Mm-hmm. Like he is when you again imagine a lower class rural American, you're picturing somebody near to Squirrely Dan. Um Unlike Wayne, but also Derry, who has speech eccentricities of his own, uh, Squirrely Dan has a common habit of adding unnecessary (laughs) S's to words that makes him sound uneducated, right? Like, that is part of who he is as a character. He's also the one most likely to lust after Katie, especially in early seasons. Oh, yeah. If this were a typical sitcom, that would be Dan's character type, comic relief that stems from his adherence to the stereotype. But as it turns out, Dan is actually probably the most educated of the group. He takes women's studies courses from Professor Trisha. And he calls out the homophobia of McMurray saying that is so gay, despite despite McMurray saying that statement about homophobia. We'll talk more about that later. I think, too, even though he puts the S's there, if you really listen to him, he does sound not eloquent, but he does like he doesn't sound hickey. No, he sounds very smart. Yeah, he sounds smart. It's almost a dialect kind of thing that he has going for himself. And I mean, later on, he goes to the women's studies and how much how much education does he really have seems like a lot Mm -hmm. honestly yeah his his appearance is telling you one thing because of the stereotype but what he's actually saying is quite different yeah um though dan might appear to be a stereotype he actually seems to have the most progressive values of the group even if sometimes he does take it further than is actually necessary like i speak feminist hat 
I did see somebody <laughs> online pointing out that in the last episode, they're all kind of the worst versions of themselves. So I do wonder what's being set up for season 12. I'm, I felt like the last episode was so weird. It didn't feel it was like weird. And I liked that. Well, it just didn't even feel like I ended it. I was like, that's the end. Mm-hmm. It felt weird. I really liked it. It was interesting. Um, so that's going to, so Squirrely Dan is probably the best the most obvious character for the subversion, but I do think that there is a degree of subversion on, in all of them, right? Like there is something subversive about all the characters, just particularly evident in Squirrely Dan. Um, do you have anything else to say about the wordplay or the language? No, I really liked it, but it is it was it did become a little tiring when I'm watching multiple episodes. Yeah, and some of it was fine, and some of it was really fucking good. I'm gonna try to permanently erase the phrase "to be fair" from to my vernacular. <laughs> that's that's fair. I I think the one that was the most not like smart that I really loved was when they were finding different names that sounded like their names. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I liked it. And I love that they went around town asking people to come help them pick up rocks. It was like this perfect scene of how wholesome the show can be mm-hmm. they're doing this they're going to people they know they're just wa- driving around town saying come pick rocks with us <laughs> and everyone's like okay and they're calling them weird names it's just i love that it, it doesn't seem like of all like the the speeches and stuff that they have that seems like the not best one but it was the most wholesome to me mm-hmm. great segue mary because i want to talk about the idea of the show as progressive and wholesome here we go. Um, Wholesome games? <laughs> don't don't get me started. Um, to return really briefly to the first time I heard of Letterkenny, again, <laughs> it was when all of my friends, most of whom are some variety of queer, simultaneously said, to be fair. Uh, um, after watching the first episode, I was a little bit confused about why all my friends love this show so much. While very funny, much of the humor was homophobic. Not a little bit, right? (laughs) It's not a little bit homophobic. The episode is largely about Wayne's feelings about his masculinity after his ex-girlfriend cheated on him. And it involves jokes about Riley and Jonesy being gay, everything happening with Glenn, Wayne using Grindr, (laughs) etc., the second episode is Super Soft Birthday, which, when I consider in the context of the whole show, feels very different. Mm-hmm. But at first, following the homophobic humor of the pilot, it again felt like it was making a mockery of anything other than traditional masculinity, at least right up until near the end when you find out that the party is really for Wayne and Katie were rather you, than for Derek. Were you so worried? About the, 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 the trajectory? Show, yeah. I was just confused. I trust my friends' yeah. tastes. Like, I'm like, there's got to be something here if they all love this so much. And they know what, like, racist, homophobic, yeah, homophobia my friends, is. My friends have brains. Like, I'm like I, there's got to be something here. But I was like, woof, this is going to be rough to get through 11 seasons of if it's all like this. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, but still, I was a bit confused about why the show was so popular among my groups of friends. It's very funny, but so much of the humor in the beginning came from mocking anything other than traditional masculinity, including homophobia, that I was a little baffled by why everybody was watching this show. So first, I want to talk about the way that the show plays into some of this, and later we can discuss the ways that it subverts those expectations. So interestingly, while the show is often hailed as being surprisingly progressive, there are some wildly different interpretations out there. Our Rural Futures by Claudia Mitchell and April Mandrona says the show, and this is a quote, continues to accent stereotypes of farm culture and offers humor that is misogynistic and homophobic, unquote. 
As Ross Lang- Langager notes in a piece I'll quote later, the show has been positively reviewed by right-wing publications like the National Post and the Federalist. In fact, the Federalist referred to it as having, quote, a middle-of-the-road political nature, unquote, which was refreshing against the, quote, progressive hate-wallowing, unquote, of shows like Broad City. I think that they don't know what they're watching. Well, now I want to... <laughs> to be fair... I will say that this article was written before Hard Right Jane. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even so, taking a political stance against Nazis is literally the least you can do. But I appreciate that they made it clear that Hard Right ideology was not welcome on the show, despite the fact that it is remarkably easy to take a stance against Nazis. Um, I also just don't think that... I mean, I obviously think we both think all things are political, mm -hmm. but I don't think that they take a middle of the road. I don't either. I think that they take a um, stereotypical, to use American terms, Democrat, right? Yeah. I think that it Letterkenny's political stance to me feels normal. It yeah. feels like the way that average people yes. engage in politics. It does not feel like they're not sitting around debating like economic theory no. because most people don't give a shit yeah <laughs> you know they're talking about the things that matter to them and the things that matter to them are dgens at the sled shack yeah you know and how you deal with that they're they things like you know the bar burning down those are things that matter and those of course those things can have political leanings but most people like the average person is not talking about them in political terms i wonder if mm, these this idea of they're not political a lot relies on not relies on but whoever wrote it did have that stereotypical farm person mm -hmm. in their head and they let that override some of the things. I don't think the show is like super liberal, right? right. But like you were saying, it's I don't I do don't you, do you mean specifically liberal or do you mean left? I would say and I socially was, or economically. Well, they're not either of those. Right. I, they're not either of those. Um I just want to be precise with yeah, the yeah, yeah. I don't think that they're either of those. I think that they're really like boringly democrat <laughs> they're very very normal so i think it's well i don't think it's weird that they that someone wrote like oh they're not political i do think it is a little weird because i do, i don't see this as being middle of the road yeah it's that's like saying middle of the road to me feels like well hold on a second okay i do want to point out we are looking at it from an american perspective this is true where the democratic party is center right in other this is true in other places this so to true. other people Letter in other countries with different political systems, this may very well be middle of the road. I feel like if, like if, yeah, I, I think it's hard because I am looking at it, but I don't feel like I'm gonna hear from them. Um, I'm socially liberal, socially democrat, fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think I'm gonna. I just hear don't think that. that they would use those words. Yeah, but but like that same idea, and I don't know how it is in Canada. So I'm using yeah. American examples right. of the equivalent to that side. Anyways, I just don't think it's middle of the road. I think someone really liked it and just wanted to feel <laughs> that way. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote from Letterkenny Problems, Misogyny and Racism by Madison. Before we get into this quote, uh, Madison, I'm so sorry for quoting something that you wrote for a college class, but it was really hard <laughs> to find anybody writing about racism in this show. Um, so good job. So good job. I'm sorry that I dug this up using the Internet Archive. I hope you got an A. I hope you got an A. 
<laughs> at the very least, you were quoted in a podcast. So shout out to you, Madison. Yeah, Madison. So Madison writes, the bartender Gail is the only person of color in the show, and she's extremely sexual in a way that makes the characters and consequently the viewers uncomfortable. She wears more drab clothing and has a direct, almost masculine presence. She is the most raunchy and vulgar character when she is talking about sex. It portrays Gail as the de- as the degrading Jezebel stereotype, eager to sleep with any man just to fill her desires. The writers make it seem as though Gail cannot even control her body from sexual urges, further objectifying black women and eliminating their agency. She lacks the sophistication and grace linked with the white female fragility Katie portrays. The difference in how men gaze upon the women, thrusting their gaze onto Katie and averting their gaze from Gail, reproduces a racist hierarchy between women by placing value on one woman and taking it from another. When I first read this, I was like, no, <laughs> no, because I love, I love Gail. And then I, I, was like, I was like, okay, like, Okay, yeah. I, I'll step, take a step back. But I was like, no, absolutely not. But I do not think Katie's fragile. No, I don't either. But I think they're playing with that a little bit, especially maybe in the first season. Um, on the one hand, I like Gail. I can't lie. This is a show about I caricatures. Like and I find Gail's to be funny within the broader context of the show. Right? At first, it feels uncomfortable. But then I feel... See, this is... It feels uncomfortable, but then I feel like they lean into the uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what sets it apart from that hypersexualized stereotype mm-hmm. is it feels uncomfortable, but you still love Gail. Well, we do is the thing. Oh, I guess this is true. Um, at the same time, despite the fact that I find Gail to be very funny, as Madison mentions, the Jezebel stereotype has a historical basis and constructs black women as inherently sexual and therefore sexually available. The Jim Crow Museum has an article explaining the history of this stereotype, which I will link in the show notes. But one of the things I noticed on the page was a photo of some kind of sculpture of a black woman with bright red lips, her hands behind her head and her hips thrust forward in a stance I could totally see Gail having. <laughs> um, what I want to be clear about here is not that I think the creators of Letterkenny set out to create a racist stereotype and Gail's actress went along with it. That's not what I'm arguing. Um, though the show may have flaws, it doesn't strike me as malicious, which mm-hmm. we'll explore more later. Um, But at the same time, Gail is one of the very few regular characters of color, and she embodies a very serious stereotype. When we're introduced to Rosie, her cousin and Wayne's girlfriend, it does balance things out a bit. But in a show based on caricatures, you cannot balance out a racist caricature, right? You just, no matter how much you try to tip the scales, a racist caricature is a racist caricature, right? You uh, You can't erase the racist part. Um, but you can still watch the show. Yeah. I don't actually want Gail to change necessarily. Mm-hmm. And asking the show to develop her more would sort of go against the established way the show works. So instead, I just want to be aware that while I'm sure she wasn't intended to be a stereotype, she is. And we should know that as we watch it, especially because this is a racist stereotype as opposed to something like, you know, Squirrely Dan. Does Gail own the bar? I think she does. I think she does. I think she does own the bar. Um, she, I can't remember what season, but in one season, she's just gone. Yeah. I think I looked it up. The actress might have been doing another movie, Did I you know think. she was in Orphan Black? Yeah, she's in like an episode or two of Orphan Black. <sighs> um, so, like, again, I just want to make clear that this is not like the show is racist and you should never watch it. It's acknowledging that I wouldn't be surprised if this was a, just like, oh, we're going to cast the person who acts this in the funniest way. Yeah. And it just happened to be a black woman. But at the same time, like that doesn't erase the fact that the caricature is racist. Mm -hmm. So instead of being like, well, we can't watch the show. Gail is a a terrible character. We can instead say, okay, this comes from a place of racism. This idea of a hypersexual black woman who who's so sexual that it disgusts the white people around her. That's a problem. 
But except for the ones that sleep with her. Except for the ones that sleep with her. But we can recognize that this probably was not done from a place of maliciousness, but from a place of like ignorance, maybe. Especially when they're creating stereotypical characters. It, yeah, it gets thorny, right? Like it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm not gonna tell you you have to be offended by it, and I'm not gonna tell you you have to be comfortable yeah. with it. You should know about the Jezebel stereotype. Yeah. And you should know how it has affected people historically. And that should inform the way that you watch a character like Gail without mm-hmm. telling you, you know, it's bad or it's good. I would rather have Gail there than not. I agree. Yeah. So and I think this idea is especially true with some of the really intense hatred people have for Gail as a character. Wow, they're dumb. When you search Gail Letterkenny, one of the audio autocomplete options is annoying. Um, people hate Gail, not because she's a stereotype, but to their eyes because she is annoying and sexual. Traits that would also apply to characters like McMurray and Mrs. McMurray. And while I'm sure they get their share of haters, Mrs. McMurray is a very conventionally attractive woman and McMurray is a white man. Somehow I just don't see it having the same vitriol that a black woman receives. You they know? really, though, I will say they really were uncomfortable in that hot tub. Oh, absolutely. They were so uncomfortable. But I think the thing is that people do not hate the McMurrays this, the way that people they outside hate of, yeah. Gail. Well, um, they're racist. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. No, I know. So this is a quote from Furta Boys. Uh, some commentary on Canadian hockey masculinity as seen in Jared Kiso and Jacob Tierney's Letter Kenny, which is by Cheryl McDonald. But I'm really stuck on why feminizing and homosexualizing remains so comical, especially within hockey culture. Homophobic and misogynistic attitudes are becoming increasingly unacceptable in society at large. And I don't like the thought of these individuals representing what it means to be a hockey player, let alone a Canadian. Because although there is some truth to the stereotype, it's not something to celebrate. With that said, I'm curious as to whether or not the fact that Riley and Jonesy are so over the top is meant to be a commentary on how inaccurate the stereotype actually is. Are they meant to be a mockery of the stereotype or are they meant to depict a certain Canadian reality? Since all of the characters on the show are quite intense in their own ways, I suspect that Kiso and Tierney have chosen to go to extremes with the stereotypical image of a young Canadian male ice hockey player in order to make light of it. But my concern with the marginalization of the LGBTQ community and women remains. So... This raises a really interesting question for me uh, in the show as a whole. There are certainly times where it's being critical of a stereotype. And then there are others where it seems like they're depicting something as it is. Mm -hmm. Both can be true, but the lack of clarity of purpose can sometimes make it hard to read. Would it be like... No. (laughs) Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Tracer. Uh And how people said it was a stereotype, but then queer people were like, no, we look like that. You can't tell us we don't. No, I think there is elements of that to it. Now, I don't think that Canadian hockey players are a marginalized group <laughs> in the same way that lesbians are. But it, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. Um, the homophobia is probably the place where this stands out most to me. Uh, and it's interesting because Jacob Tierney, who plays Glenn and who writes the show with Jared Kiso, is actually gay. Uh, it is possible for gay men to have internalized homophobia. That's true. But I don't think that's actually what's going on. I think there's a sort of tension between a few different things like Canadian politeness versus rural grittiness and in versus out group humor. The nice onesie does it come in men. I think you come in men enough for the both of us joke in the pilot intends to hurt the hockey players by emasculating them through the implication that they're gay. And it's also a response to an attempt at the same thing toward Gary. Dairy, not Gary. Um, That's homophobic, right? (laughs) Like we can agree that's homophobic. But I think there's also some interesting wiggle room here with regard to who is allowed to say what. 
Tierney can be playfully homophobic because he's gay, but can Wayne, a straight character, use Tierney's words without being yeah. homophobic? We are assuming that Tierney wrote the joke, which I don't know for certain. But here's the thing. I laughed at the joke. <laughs> like, I laughed. I think it's clever. But it's worth asking who the target of the mockery is here. Is it the hockey players for being perceived as gay? Is it the hockey players for thinking they can be that they can go toe to toe with the Hicks? Is it the hockey players fragile masculinity? Is it the Hicks's rural crassness? Is it the Hicks's homophobia? We don't know. And I think that's where some of this tension becomes. Here comes a scary word. I think this is where some of the tension becomes problematic. Wow, you snowflake. <laughs> in that it presents you a offended. Pr- in that it presents a problem to us as viewers. Who are we laughing at, if anybody? I think the most comfortable and in my opinion most true answer is that we're not laughing at anybody in particular. We're laughing at the wordplay itself. That doesn't make it not homophobic, but none of the above explanations quite fit to me, right? Mm -hmm. I think it could be any of those things. We could be laughing at the hockey player's fragile masculinity. We could be laughing at the Hicks's homophobia. We could be laughing at any of this. We're not laughing at just a good joke. Yeah, we could just be laughing at the wordplay. And maybe Um, it's true. mm -hmm. The show is so focused on its wordplay at the expense of things like pacing and character development (laughs) that we would normally expect from fictional media that it does actually make sense to me to think that we are laughing at the wordplay itself and not what the wordplay is targeting, which is interesting and requires a level of cognitive dissonance. That is why I'm not going to say, actually, the joke is fine because I laughed at it because I was laughing at the wordplay. That doesn't make it not homophobic. Yeah. It just makes it a little more complicated to discuss. So if we can agree that the joke stems from homophobia, I think it is worth asking how it could be treated in a way that is not homophobic. Like, can we preserve the integrity of this joke, which I find very funny, without the joke being homophobic? A lot of people read Riley and Jonesy as queer in some way, especially with one another, and I would feel less mixed about this joke if instead of them responding with indignation and another dig, which is what happens, they instead responded with something like, fair point, bro, now ask me how many times I came in your sister. Which is, I don't think they'd ever be so straightforward. Though. I don't think so either. <laughs> that joke is gross and borderline misogynistic, but within the scope of turning the tables, you know, I'm not a fucking comedy writer. Do not at me for writing a bad joke. Do it. Um, you could also conceivably end without sparring back, as we've seen happen a lot with Riley and Jonesy versus Shorzy, <laughs> provided that they aren't wounded by the attack on their masculinity. I am convinced Shorzy does sleep with their moms. He probably does. I'm convinced. He's probably their dad. Oh, my God. If there was a shared acknowledgement that Riley and Jonesy are queer and Wayne's job was merely clever rather than homophobic or intentionally invoking the hockey players as fragile masculinity, the joke could still still work. And that's why I think there's nuance to this. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I think there is a world in which this joke lands without being just offensive. And all of this discussion in particular comes from the pilot. I do think it's better about this later on, but we're going to get to that later. Um, This is a quote uh, from Letterkenny, an undiscovered Canadian gem by Hugh Sanders. This kind of natural law philosophy is, no matter how you slice it, a relic. Going way back, past even feudalism, and right back to Greco-Roman ideals of great men sorting everything out. But the way Letterkenny presents it, if... Even if it's swathed in the kind of toilet humor we balk at associating with the classics, it works. You almost feel like you can talk about it having traditional values without spitting. A big part of this is the show's point-blank refusal to endorse bigotry of any stripe. For instance, the skid's brief attempt at homophobia in the first episode is helplessly muddled given that one of them is openly gay, which is, after all, the big sticking point most people have with traditionalism. 
So this is a good expansion on this topic. Uh, Saunders discusses Wayne's distinct form of masculinity, which is a sort of rural type of masculinity based on being the protector and steward of your land and community. When you factor that into the fact that while homophobia and misogyny are sources of humor at times in the series, it does make a little sense. Wayne, and presumably to some degree the other Hicks, are attempting to fulfill their role as protectors, and they turn to these things as insults, but mocking individuals in the community is off-limits, such as with Rold. Notably, they're not homophobic at Rold. Mm -mm. They're homophobic towards two presumably straight guys. Does it make sense logically? No. But we'll talk more about the lack of logic with regard to the homophobia in a bit. Actually, we're going to talk about it right now. I just looked ahead. Here we go. Buckle in. Buckle in. It's not a perfect argument, nor do I think it's a particularly convincing one. I don't think that it excuses the homophobic humor. I want to be abundantly clear here. I'm not trying to excuse the homophobic humor in the show. but It's just complicated. It's complicated. Um, But I do think it's worth asking why it is included at all when one of the show's creators is gay and when there are a bunch of queer characters. And I think there's a that's a possible explanation, especially when you think about interactions like the discussion outside of the shack about what to do with the (laughs) D-gens. So McMurray says something along the lines of homophobia is gay, which is a nonsense (laughs) statement. And Squirrely Dan calls him out for being homophobic. But the phrase homophobia is gay is interesting right like it's clearly using gay as a pejorative which we can agree is homophobic yeah like to say something is gay when you mean it's bad is homophobic but it's saying homophobia is bad but the statement is affirming that homophobia not queerness is bad it's a puzzle that reflects mcmurray's general stupidity but i also think the show is interested in a sort of your heart is in the right place position it's really good writing Mm mm-hmm very few characters in Letterkenny are outright bigots, but most of them at some point say something homophobic, misogynistic, or otherwise. They occupy this gray area of feeling the right things and treating people largely the right way, but their language, despite being extremely clever, is not up to snuff. I think that makes it that much funnier when Riley and Jonesy take up, I don't think that's PC, buddy, as a catchphrase. Not only is PC like a decade out of date at this point, but they often use it incorrectly. But importantly, questioning whether something is PC reflects that the characters are thinking about the way that they refer to others. I love when Tannis, uh, they have the... Uh, is it the energy drink that's called Indian? Yeah, Indian And they're energy. like, that's not PC. And they're like, you said it. <laughs> It's very funny. Yeah. I also think that actually a lot like what we do in the shadows, Letterkenny operates from a position of being funny first. That's not a super satisfying answer to this question of why homophobic and misogynistic humor persists in the show, but I do think it's a true one. Like, I think the show's priority is jokes first, everything else second. One thing I want to drill into a little bit more is the idea of masculinity within the show. While there are women in the show, I think Letterkenny is very focused on masculinity, especially with Wayne as its central character. The show never gets away from its over-sexualized, panning down women's bodies. It cannot stop. Um, Bonnie McMurray. The Bonnie McMurray thing is at least funny to me, but it's like every time a female character is introduced, we have to have a slow-mo shot going down her body. Yeah. Um, or when Katie hooks up with a with a girl, the the way yeah. that it's it's like, <laughs> who's this for? Yeah, <laughs> and then she like never does again. Yeah, like she's always hitting on girls, but like her relationships are always with men. Yeah. Which like you know what? That's that's how that's like a legitimate form of attraction. So I'm not gonna say it can't happen. It's but the like, way it's filmed, it's just like the way that this happens over and over again is silly. 
Um, Wayne is, as we've discussed, something of a stereotypical rural man in both good and bad ways. Uh, because the show isn't really about character development or growth, we have 11 seasons of him being largely the same, right up until the ending of season 11, which does something interesting in having him try to help Jive and Pete by giving him a job. But Jive and Pete doesn't do... Th- it is so funny to talk about somebody named Jive and I Pete. I hate, I hate it, but it's very good. <laughs> but Jive and Pete doesn't do the work. And when Wayne suggests that Jive and Pete take some time to figure himself out, Jive and Pete start spreading rumors about Wayne. Which is like the worst. Yeah. And one of the rumors, notably, that he spreads is that uh, he tells the... Um, he tells the skids that they that he called them fags. Oh yeah, yeah which yeah, is yeah. cruel. Wayne would not do that. Never. We know Wayne would not do that, uh, and they know too. Like that—that's part of the reason that they report it to him is because they're like, we know you wouldn't do this. Um, so Wayne confronts Jive and Pete. Jive and Pete suggests Wayne go get his boys to settle this the normal way, and Wayne and everybody else beat them up. Except the end is somber, right? It's not triumphant the way that or fun the way that the fight scenes normally are. It's very somber. Well, he's he's having to, like, the thing that he's kicking their ass for feels so much more personal. Yeah. Because it's how he's perceived in his community. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really interesting. Yeah. As opposed to, um, you cheated on my sister. What's some other ones? You cheated on me. You cheated on me. You, I just want to know if I can fight you. Yeah. Um, before we can unpack that ending, uh, let's discuss how Wayne's masculinity is constructed through the rest of the show. So Wayne let's. adheres to a pretty, a pretty traditional rural masculinity, as we discussed earlier. But there are, there are angles of it that don't quite match up, right? The super soft birthday party, for example. Um, while he is quite masculine, it's unusual for Wayne to be toxic mm-hmm. in his masculinity. Um He's largely respectful toward people who aren't like him. There is a line between discomfort, such as he sometimes showcases with people like Gale, the Dicks, or Roll, and the violence he shows toward people who threaten others, right? There's a difference in, in that. Some people interpret Wayne's stoicism as autism because of how it influences his interactions with other people and his ability to sort of see through artifice, which is really interesting to me. But mm-hmm. I do want to focus on stoicism for a minute, which comes from an ancient Greek philosophy that isn't easy to sum up quickly. Um... In part, stoicism was about understanding the source of emotions and acting rationally and according to virtue. But like many many modern interpretations of classical philosophy, it sort of mutated into the simplistic idea that emotions are bad because they are not rational, and therefore being emotional is evidence that you are not rational. This shallow stoicism is often adopted by men's rights groups and similar ideologies and trotted out in debates as a means of showing that anybody who gets emotional during a debate has lost. This is really common um, Mm -hmm. when somebody who has like that form of ideology will challenge somebody to a debate. Like, for example, debating a woman about Mm -hmm. abortion activism or sexual assault. And if she gets emotional in any way, she has, quote unquote, lost because she is displaying an emotion. Yeah. And the kinds of men who do this are aware that their audiences see displays of emotion as fragile and weak and feminine. And um non-logical hysteric yeah yeah yeah, exactly wayne doesn't strike me as a men's rights activist or anything but he does strike me as stoic and with the end of season 11 i do wonder if whether there is some exploration of his sort of closed off emotions and his masculinity ahead i found that ending to be so interesting and i really hope that there is some degree of exploration of like what are the consequences of this form of masculinity what is this doing to wayne 
Um, I think also, too, he's beating up people in his own community. Yeah, it's a very different... I didn't think about that. Yeah. I mean, he does in, in the beginning, too, but it's people who are like, let's fight. They're opting into yeah. it. Yeah. And I like, didn't think about that. And he's he has he tried to offer Jive and Pete, like, he, he offered him a job, and then he was let down by him, and then he tried to offer him, like, you know, go figure yourself out, and Jive and Pete turned it into an attack and was like, oh, you're firing me. He's like, no, I'm not firing you. I didn't say I was firing you. And then Jive and Pete turns it into an excuse to start rumors. So he feels betrayed by him. Mm-hmm. This is a very different um, a very different dif- disagreement than he's had with some of the er- other characters who he has fought with in the past. Um, this is a quote from The Nuanced Dualistic Masculinity of Letterkenny by Ross Langager. One of the first season's highlights is the second episode, Super Soft Birthday, in which Wayne and Katie throw an annual birthday party for Daryl that, as the name implies, revels in soft, childish, even feminized elements, pink balloons and streamers, a bouncy castle, a pony with a braided mane, tiaras and feather boas, cupcakes and cotton candy, and colorful and sweet alcoholic drinks. Letterkenny at once ironically contrasts the super softness with the stereotypical hardness of rural masculinity. Wayne does fight Joint Boy when the leader (laughs) crashes the party, the latter crashes the party, after all. But it also unironically enjoys the super softness because it's just fun and there's nothing at all wrong with that. The super soft birthday is Letterkenny and masculinity in a nutshell. Letterkenny is comfortable with a more fluid and open conception of masculinity at the same time as it t- locates a certain old-fashioned value in traditional masculine definitions, which it also feels free to rib gently. It's a nimble and nuanced dance that is always buoyed by humor and good nature, and despite its cruder and less sensitive moments, it's a dance of the masculine that gets Letterkenny through. I think in a lot of ways, Letterkenny occupies a space between binaries of good and bad, PC and bigotry, and also challenges the common stereotype of Canadians as unfailingly polite. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see this in how masculinity is portrayed. Wayne is at once this really hyper-masculine character and a character who has an appreciation for a super soft birthday, who's invested in the people in his community and who treats the other people with respect exactly as far as they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, his masculinity is largely not toxic, which is important to understand. Masculinity, masculinity itself is not a problem, but there is an association between masculinity, violence, and disregard for others, which is where the toxic part comes in. When masculinity talk- isn't inherently yeah. violent. And-, yeah. and and I think that's something, when people hear toxic masculinity, they think it's masculinity that's toxic, yeah. and it's actually the certain behaviors that have become associated with mm-hmm. masculinity that are toxic and not just like being a man or else it would be or else there'd be a lot of things to say about trans men right in occupying this sort of space between the binaries letter county pushes a bit at our understanding of masculinity our understanding of men and goodness and badness but i think there are more interesting things to be done with that space between and as we've discussed i wonder if the end of season 11 is getting there Uh, Because while I do wholeheartedly believe that sometimes violence is necessary, it isn't always the right approach. And because violence is intertwined with masculinity and whiteness, we should question who gets to meet that violence out, especially because, as Hugh Hugh Saunders points out in their article, Wayne takes on the responsibility of the noblesse oblige or the idea that those with privilege have the responsibility to care for those who don't. And he does this in the absence of traditional law enforcement. You do not see law enforcement in Letterkenny. Essentially, Wayne serves the function of law enforcement, but is a white man acting as de facto law enforcement actually better than law enforcement when everybody treats him as law enforcement? Is this a communist haven? (laughs) It's worth thinking about. 
right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have a clear answer, but I hope that season 12, in building off of the ending of season 11, will start to question the reliance that they have, that Letterkenny has, on enacting justice through a white man who commits violence, right? Especially when often um, you see the women look being very turned on by this violence. Yeah, yeah. Which, to be fair, <laughs> uh, there are times when I'm like, yeah, he does look good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, have like... Google him outside of this. What he looks like, Jared Kiso. Jared Kiso. Holy shit, he's so fucking hot. We're only human. He's so fucking hot. It's like <laughs> I'm not attracted to him in the show at all, really, because you never see his eyes. But holy shit, with the picture that comes up when you Google him, smash. <laughs> so this is a quote from Figuring It Out in Sitcoms: Examining Whiteness in King of the Hill and Letter Kenny by Peter J. Woods. The characters of Letterkenny seem far more willing to listen to the voice of others, while Hank rejects anyone else's opinion, as shown by his refusal to believe the implicit bias test he takes. Squirrely Dan is eager to bring in the words of people from outside the group through the inclusion of Professor Trisha's thoughts. And even after the characters have shut down McMurray multiple times for holding on to racist and homophobic ideas, he seems eager to meet Professor Trisha to learn more. Again, this points to an openness to understanding their own practices, their own contributions to the furthering of whiteness that remains absent in King of the Hill. I had a hard time understanding that part because she just starts taking off her clothes. <laughs> I'm like, what are you saying here? I don't know. I don't, I'm so confused. You know, I think, you know, here's what I think. I think they were playing again with the stereotype. Until this point, we had not seen P- Professor Trisha. Certain audiences are going to have an idea of, of a who, a Woody, a, who a women's study professor is. And the fact that she shows up and she's super hot and she starts taking off her clothes is at once pandering to the presumed audience as it is destroying the stereotype of what a women's pr- women's studies professor. I hundred like. percent. Yeah, I think that's it because when you because that's this, when they're having the the uh, international women's yeah, day. and they're disgusting and like these are people yeah. like Katie who you, who are supposed to be like super hot Bonnie McMurray yeah and they're disgusting. Disgusting. Filthy. So I think that works. Yeah. That works for me. I was having a I hard think, time. I, I think, again, at once it is being really stereotypical. It's pandering to the the audience that's attracted to women, like, and specifically men who are attracted to women. But it is doing it in an interesting way by having this women's studies professor who we have probably, especially certain audiences, have built up in our heads to be like a stereotype of like maybe an old woman or like a 40-year-old woman with um, short hair and it's blue and she's angry all the time. And in fact, Professor Trisha shows up and she's way hot. Super hot. And just takes her clothes off because she's not afraid of these men. Like full clothes. Like Fully. just in her underwear. Yeah, she's just wearing laundry under her clothes, which yeah. is nuts. I but, mean, anything you can do to get men to listen. <laughs> but I think that in that same way, like, yeah, it's being a little gross about it. But I also like it is it is funny the way that they're subverting our expectations for what a women's perce- women's studies professor is. So to re- return to the quote, um, the show is not by any stretch the perfect bastion of representation for marginalized identities. Right. But I think in a way we could maybe compare it to something like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. There's this attempt to be aware of and sensitive to these groups through the character's willingness to be open to difference. 
one of the things that can be an issue in small towns is the in-group, out-group mentality, where anybody who is in the town is good and anybody outside of it is bad. Therefore, marginalized identities that are part of the town are acceptable, whereas others are not. So, for example, you know, you're, a, you're you live in a small town, you have a queer couple who lives in town. They're the good ones. Those other people, those let's say Dgens from Seattle. Those are the bad ones. They are gross and weird. The ones in your town are good, though, because they keep to themselves. I think, yeah, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that Letterkenny gets away from it entirely, but it does make an effort to not make everything Letterkenny against the world, but rather Letterkenny against DGens from upcountry or people like Hard Right Jay who come into town and go against its values. Characters like Anik, Marie Fred, Gay, and so on may not always be nice, but they aren't the target of derision solely for being outsiders. We also know Marie Fred can suck it. Marie Fred can suck it. We also know that not everybody in Leonard Kenny is good. Hence the amount, the number of issues with Jive and Pete, for example. But it is notable that Leonard Kenny residents like Jive and Pete are given an opportunity to be helped by their community. People from out of town are not. Um, so returning to my surprise that so many of my friends watch the <laughs> show, uh, I think there's a lot of hype around it because it is a show about a small town where queer people and people of color are ne- neither villainized nor used as teaching moments for the straight white cis characters. They are just allowed to be right. They're just allowed to be characters in this town of characters, which is unfortunately unusual. It's notable that, for example, the show has a number of queer men on it as well as queer women. But I want to talk about queer men specifically because the whole thing with the queer women in the show is... <laughs> An afterthought? (laughs) It's not even that it's an afterthought. It's just kind of like, I don't know that any of the queer women in the show have a clear identity. Yeah. Um, Tannis is as close as you get. Yeah. Yeah. It's Tannis. I'm... (laughs) Yeah. It's it's hard. It's complicated. It's complicated. Um, For a long time, uh, flamboyant or more femme gay men were the only type of gay men portrayed in mainstream media. And we used a variety of words to describe this. Um, Flamboyant, flaming, femme, word I don't normally use, faggy, um, stuff like that. These portrayals were often homophobic. The point was not some gay men are like this, but rather gay men are failing at being men because they act like women. That, that is what was being communicated like in the 90s when you had queer representation of queer men. That was this more like, I'm using the word feminine, feminine in very large scare quotes, but that's the best way I can think of to explain this. Um, the emphasis was not that this is, ref- this is reflective of the way that some queer men behave, but rather queerness is a manifestation of failed masculinity. Um, once we realized as a society that this depiction was homophobic, we shifted more to gay men. They're just like us. It, this mentality of like gay men are failing because they're acting like women and is still prevalent when you look at so many people who are getting angry at trans women for cosplaying as women uh-huh. or pretending to be a woman or, or just saying you're disrespecting like women in general and then they'll be like i'm i'm totally fine with lgbt people but you specifically are Mm -hmm. just putting on a costume and that's offensive that still to me seems like gay men acting like women Mm -hmm. like that still feels like that's still there and it's so frustrating you managed to miss the mark so yeah (laughs) you Um, fucked up so bad so once we realized that this like concept of queer masculinity was homophobic we shifted more to gay men they're just like us which 
while not homophobic, I think had sort of an unfortunate consequence for gay men who actually are more femme. Mm -hmm. They began to seem like caricatures or like disappointments because they were somehow being gay men wrong. Like there is a suggestion that any queer man who is more femme or more flaming or whatever term you want to use that they now are doing queerness wrong. They're doing some sort of disservice to the queer community by behaving in a way that feels right to them because it does not fit the idea of normalcy. Um, I appreciate that the gay men in Letterkenny who are more femme, including Ron and Dax, largely do so without judgment. And even characters like Roald and Glenn are allowed to be little weirdos in ways <laughs> that stem from things other than their sexuality. Glenn and Roald are undeniably little weirdos. Oh, like, they are just little little gremlins. They are. But, gremlins is a good word. But they are them. not... It is not their sexuality that defines that. Like for Glenn, it's a little weird because he's in denial about his sexuality, but also Glenn's just a little fucking weirdo. Um, that kind of thing, the fact that you have characters like Ron and Dax who are gay and who are like gym bros, but also like the way they talk. Well, is, uh, go ahead. It, it just, it strikes me as a little more in line with the stereotype than it does the like, I'm so sorry to do this. I literally, I literally am so sorry to do this. I've avoided talking about The Last of Us at all. Um, Get ready to be sad. I'm so sorry. This is to run counterpoint to the depiction of queer characters in, say, The Last of Us, where you have these two like very masculine men. So it kind of comes as a surprise when they're gay, right? You're not surprised that Ron and Dax are gay based on the way that they act, the way that they dress. That's actually refreshing to me, maybe more refreshing to me than the depiction in The Last of Us, because at least I mean, I don't think The Last of Us is like shaming any the way that anybody um, the way that anybody, you know, behaves or but they're not being as progressive as people think. Yeah, like there's this, there's still this concept that like to have a very masculine yeah. man be gay is more progressive than having a more femme man be gay. And it's like. Actually, there's no one single way to be gay. Yeah. I think what was interesting about them is all, all that stuff, but as well as they get married and then you find out that they got married to buy a house. <laughs> They're not together. They yeah. sleep with a bunch of people. It's interesting because it kind of feels like they're just... Um, Jonesy and Riley. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're Riley and Jonesy, Jonesy freed from the shackles of heterosexual. Well, and they do the same thing. They hook up with the same yeah. people. It's the exact same thing, except, um, for obvious differences. But I did love that they got married. Mm -hmm. And especially because it felt, I don't know, I, I didn't think they were a couple. And I'm like, well, they're getting married. And then they're like, oh, it was just for tax reasons. We want to buy a house. <laughs> um, Note, please note that when I'm saying femme, I'm not meaning that they are feminine so much as I'm comparing these characters against traditional masculinity. They're all men. Um, it's it's just it has to do with, you know, how how a person performs their queerness performs as in the Judith Butler sense, not as in it's an act. Um this is also notable when it comes to the First Nations characters, notably Tannis, who are part of the story and who have their identities woven through the characters. The show has been heavily praised for its representation of Native people, which is in no small part because they, the, these actors who portray the, the Native people have a say in the character directions. Because of that, you end up with cultural touchstones you wouldn't have if they were written solely by white people, which range from things like Tannis's jewelry to some Native characters pointing with their lips, which is like a cultural... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's not really a tradition, but it's just like a, a behavior, a cultural mm -hmm. behavior that is um, common among indigenous people. 
Uh, even if this isn't necessarily challenging viewers to think differently, much like the nuances of the show's characterizations of stereotypical stock characters, it's presenting a sort of reality of this town, which isn't real, literally, but is to some degree real for all the people who see themselves and their communities represented in it. Yeah, it kind of feels like earlier when we were talking about speaking the language mm-hmm. of the small town, this is speaking the language of, of like Native people within this area. Right. Um, and I think that idea is what Letterkenny is like, I hate to call it progressiveness because depicting people that actually exist in the world is in itself progressive. Um, it's just that most other television is extremely bad at it. <laughs> and even Letterkenny isn't perfect. But the show emphasizes a culture of inclusion. Everyone belongs in Letterkenny. It's not challenging other than if you are like on hard right J levels of bigotry. But it is refreshing to have a raunchy sitcom also be the one where queer people and indigenous people exist without their marginalizations being the source of humor. It does seem like uh, in the middle of all the seasons that they just don't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's... I was like, where? Tannis is my favorite character. So I was like, I was very aware when Tannis was not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, again, this gets complicated when you consider the homophobic humor. But if we can understand it in the context of the in-group, out-group mentality and the fact that the show seems to be sort of pushing at the boundaries of acceptability, then I do think it makes some degree of sense. That doesn't mean that we have to like it or let it off the hook, only that we're trying to understand what the function of it is in a show written and directed by a gay man who clearly isn't espousing internalized homophobia, right? We're not trying to come down on the side of this is good or bad. We're trying to understand why it's happening at Mm -hmm. all. This is a quote from Figuring It Out in Sitcoms, Examining Whiteness in King of the Hill and Letterkenny by Peter J. Woods. Two key distinctions exist between Letterkenny and King of the Hill's treatment of whiteness. And for the moment, I'm going to follow Dyer's analysis and conflate whiteness and heterosexuality because of the ways they remain intertwined. While the knee-jerk, defensive reaction from being accused of racism or homophobia remains, the characters on Letterkenny don't spend the entire scene trying to prove that they aren't homophobic or racist. While they do do that to some extent, there is a genuine interest on the part of the characters to understand what about their actions results in that oppression. At no point in the King of the Hill episode does Hank seem open to the opinions of other people who say he might be racist, as the show only portrays a character trying to prove something to somebody else. So I think this is a really important distinction. I haven't watched King of the Hill, so I can't speak to that. But I do think it's notable that the characters of Letterkenny don't waste time quibbling about whether or not they are racist or homophobic. When Squirrely Dan calls McMurray out for using homophobic language, even as he's disparaging homophobia, McMurray questions the logic. Like, he's like, but wait, it's not, I said, how can I be homophobic if I said homophobia is bad? Like, he's, he's struggling with that. Um... So he questions the logic, but he seems content to change his language. He doesn't push back and say, well, I'm not changing my language. No. He just doesn't, as presumably, doesn't use the word gay like that anymore. They are in agreement that gay people are normal and homophobia is bad, but their understanding of what constitutes homophobia is different, and that can be addressed by changing and adapting the language. McMurray and the others are willing to accept that they might be wrong. So rather than letting them off the hook for being good people, as we know as we know them to be, Letterkenny allows its characters to accept that they may be wrong and that that's okay as long as they are willing to learn something and change behavior. And I would argue that largely they do. Mm-hmm. This is not really a focus of the show, but when you do have conversations like that one with homophobia is gay and then talking about <laughs> talking about homophobia, like for example, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Joint Boy, or the other guy that's always with Joint Boy. Mm-hmm. I think Joint Ostrich. No, that's not. No, else. that's Ginger and Boots. Yeah, or whatever. The Ginger and Boots. Um, I think Joint Boy accuses the other guy. He says, "Well, you were homophobic because you beat up that gay guy." 
And he's like, well, I didn't know he was gay when I beat him <laughs> up. So how can it be homophobic? Um, you have like these conversations that are kind of picking at the threads of like, okay, so certainly beating up a gay guy is homophobic. Is it homophobic if I didn't know he was gay? <laughs> Saying homophobia is gay, using gay as a pejorative is homophobic. But is it intended as pejorative when I use the word gay to say that homophobia is bad? Like it's picking at the threads of these like common understandings of um, of what constitutes bigotry. And again, are these people the right people to always be making these arguments? I can't say that for sure. I can't tell you that you have to like it. All I'm trying to do here is to understand the context and the reasons why they might be making these arguments in this like comedy show about wordplay. <laughs> um, I think racism is less of a topic in Letterkenny. Um, there's certainly anti-First Nations sentiment that's addressed in humorous ways, particularly in the episode's Native Flu, um, <laughs> and and then directly in Hard Right J. But other than that, and the brief conversation about ethnicities in the Sludge Shack episode, I don't remember it really being much of an issue, which is sort of a mis- mixed bag. On the one hand, it's nice to have a comedy where characters of color exist without being teaching moments for the white characters. Mm-hmm. But on the other, the, sh- the show is pretty damn white. <laughs> Um, while that might be reflective of the reality of small town Canada, it would be nice to see the show engage with the reality of isolationism. Like it's great that the whole town agrees that hard right Jay is a fuck. And I think that was necessary. Um, however, however much people might find that episode to be heavy handed to take an extremely firm and direct stance that the show does not tolerate that kind of bigotry is important. Especially Um, when I'm sure that aired like, cause it, it didn't, it aired in season 10 or nine. Uh, I think it was like season six. Oh, yeah. Like, it's important to have that in there, especially when they probably read the article where they're like, middle of the road. They're like, we're not. It was only a few ep- a few months before. Oh, interesting. Um, So, like, it's great that the whole town agrees that Hard Right Jay's a fuck. But what about the more insidious kinds of racism? Like, are those positions being challenged? And I don't think that they are. Um, And I think that's an opportunity for the show to, to push a bit harder. Um, this is another, this is a quote from, uh, the nuanced dualistic masculinity of Letterkenny by Ross Langager. Um, it's worth keeping in mind, of course, that Letterkenny is a comedy first and foremost, and as mentioned, focuses on the laughs well before giving any care or consideration to consistent characterizations, themes, or ideas. Its comedic nature also renders it especially slippery as a text about masculinity. It can be difficult to pinpoint when exactly Letterkenny is lampooning the harsher elements of traditional masculinity and when it is celebrating them. There's a species of nuanced dualism to the depiction of masculinity in Letterkenny, a, con- a concerted effort to retain traditional markers of masculinity and integrate them with positive elements of more modern and progressive ideas of what it means to be a man. So we've touched on these ideas of duality and humor quite a lot already, but I think Langager is right, hits it right on the head here. The characters of Letterkenny are largely likable with a couple of exceptions, and I think people who are from rural places and people who have never lived in a rural place are equally likely to find something to enjoy about Mm -hmm. it. But rural people are not always kindly represented in media. And there's a perception that they're all backwards bigots, which is demonstrably untrue. Look to movements in Appalachia, like look into leftist movements in Appalachia, or more immediately look to the anti-cop city protests in Georgia. They're intense. They are intense. Um, Liberal America. Sorry, I'm American. I'm always American. Damn American. America's my touchstone here. Liberal America largely writes off rural places as unsalvageable cesspits, which is both a class and race issue. And getting people acquainted with what rural life is like and can be like is maybe not going to fix that, but at least open some minds to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And conversely, 
having the characters of Letterkenny in no uncertain terms bring feminism, warmth, and care to their masculinity is also important, as are episodes like Hard Right J, which, <laughs> while preachy, tells audiences who might tend toward associating the white characters of the show with bigotry that it's not true. Sometimes you gotta be heavy-handed. Yeah, when you are dealing with alt-right ideology, and more specifically Nazi- Nazis, with J- which Jay says he isn't exactly like every other fucking Nazi, yes. um, it has to be done directly. You cannot entertain the idea that of that kind of ideology with politeness, or you will drive everybody who's threatened by it away. If you are willing to hear the side of the Nazi, you then are you are Nazi. Then you are not doing enough to protect the marginalized groups. Like, you, why you would can, you want to? We, can, we cannot negotiate with Nazis. Oh. Uh. Um, uh, will you play like? Will you play nice with both sides, or will you stand for marginalized people? Letterkenny chooses the later path, the latter path. And while I think it's sometimes clumsy about it, and there are certainly places where the show does not succeed, I see the effort and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. In essence, as Landgager explains, I think there's an attempt to blend the stereotype with the real and the hypermasculine with the challenges to that, and all those different binaries together. The truth is often somewhere in the middle, even if the extremes also exist. Agreed. Um, another quote here, uh, figuring it out in sitcoms, examining whiteness in King of the Hill and Letterkenny by Peter J. Woods. Um, still, Letterkenny's approach still illustrates a small but important facet of anti-racist work. A bunch of white dudes standing around and calling each other out for saying, doing, and thinking <laughs> dumb shit. It's far from a perfect conversation and a number of tensions and unresolved issues loom over the end of the scene, but that's going to happen. Figuring this out doesn't happen on day one of the book club, or maybe even during the book club at all, but it can act as a call for white people to figure their shit out without having to rely on the emotional labor of people of color. So McMurray might not have actually exercised everything he needed to from his past, but he figured some shit out and became open to figuring out even more. But dear God, we, meaning white people, need to get there faster. Yeah. Like, again, I just think this is really efficient at explaining what works about Letterkenny for me even if it's not perfect it depicts change and it leaves space for people who are ignorant to learn McMurray's an asshole (laughs) but he's not a racist or homophobe for example right he's an asshole and he's not super smart but he's not a hateful person right no he says the wrong thing sometimes but it's coming from like a source of ignorance and vernacular that isn't willful and possibly alcoholism yeah definitely his wife yeah um, I do think that there is value in that, especially because it accepts both that people are not perfect and that they are also capable of doing better. And sometimes that lack of perfection comes not from deliberate avoidance of social issues, but from a lack of exposure, even as I wish the show would go a bit further to challenge other ideas. What I like about this this like ending, this like quote in particular, is that it acknowledges the effort put in, but ends with, quote, we need to get there faster. It's great, right? It's great that this exists in the show, but it's not quite enough, right? Um, I think maybe the thing with Letterkenny is that rather than being a comedy that makes you think about the world, it's a comedy that doesn't make you feel bad. Yeah. Um, And that's not a bad thing, even if I do wish that it would go a bit further. Uh, In one of the wildest comparisons maybe that I've ever made, um, (laughs) Letterkenny reminds me a bit of Legends of Tomorrow. Um, so many superpowers. In that if you stripped away the representational aspects, the queer characters, etc., you'd have a pretty good show, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be groundbreaking, but it would be pretty good. 
Um, both feel to me like representations of enjoyable television from a universe where things are just a little bit better than they are here, which honestly is its own enjoyable form of escapism. I think it's really important to point out that if you haven't listened to our other episodes or anything else and you're like, oh, I want to listen to this. It's really important to know that um, Legends of Tomorrow is one of Missy's favorite shows. I fucking love Legends so, of I just say that because some people fucking hate it. I know. And they're wrong. Yeah. So I want to I want to make sure like that comparison, despite saying like. It's still, you know, it's, it's a, a good, show. good show. Also, one of Missy's that's favorite high, shows. That's high praise. That's from me. high praise. <laughs> that's like a pitchfork six. That's a pitchfork six. <laughs> that's a pitchfork six is our equivalent to that's a Texas size 10 four. Yeah. That's a pitchfork six. That's a pitchfork six. <laughs> if you don't know anything about pitchfork, that makes no, no sense. Is, and now, now we're it. engaging in our own letter, Kenny. Yeah, this is true. Isms. Well, you know what's funny is that I think for you and me, we don't notice it. But I know outside people notice that we specifically you and me have almost our own way oh absolutely of speaking and Eating people like Lou Ferrigno yeah well even just the way that we speak a I true mystery <laughs> a true mystery the way like we we t- I'm sure people everybody makes steaks <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sh- leaving all that in good 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 I am sure people have noticed who listen to this podcast that we talk fast. Yeah, yeah. And there are some people who have told me before, and maybe you as well, we talk too fast. Mm-hmm. But we know exactly what we're saying, and we don't necessarily have to finish that. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of like that creating that language, Letter Kenny has been really like good at creating that language. And it's it. welcome people in. Yes, yes. And we I don't think- welcome people in. No, we I'm just we- kidding. <laughs> no, we're talk faster. Get out. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I- I so my final my final thought here is that I didn't love Letterkenny. I thought it was it's really clever. It's very funny. It's not something I would want to watch all the time. Um, but I found it to be a really fascinating show. Yeah. Despite that, um, if we're gonna talk about shows that are from a slightly a slightly better universe than ours, like I would take Legends of Tomorrow, um, a perfect show. <laughs> I don't know. Some weird shit happens there. No, it's if you cut out the first season, so the big, the giant, what's his name? Oh, Bebo. Yeah. Oh, Bebo. Good old Bebo. Yeah, I hate Bebo. Sorry. I really liked Letter Kenny. I think that it had its ups and downs, but when it had its ups, they were real up there. Yeah. I, like, I'm sorry that the jo- the two the two <laughs> jokes I laughed at hardest are you come in men enough for both of us, and anytime they go the dark web. I really like when Roald goes. Oh my god, I love Stuart. Stuart. I love them both. Have I you ever looked at Stuart like in real life? Yeah, uh, he looks different. Yeah, he looks was in, he was so in Supernatural. The fuck! I think Jared Kiso might have also been in Supernatural. I'm not even looking it up. I'm taking that at face value because <laughs> I like it. He's played Wayne in an episode of Supernatural. <laughs> That's how I picture it. Uh, I could see Stuart enrolled in Supernatural. Stuart definitely. Let me tell you the when they try to find. I'm sure you. Have, agree with me but when they do the bake sale who stole the money <laughs> spec fucking tacular with well, Stuart <laughs> he rolls up and I'm like oh that's me oh, it was so good it was so good it was so very good that was the most represented I've been in the show good I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you <laughs> do you have anything else to say about Letter Kenny uh, no it was good I think it's interesting I think my biggest thing that I wish I would have seen more of well is selfish i like tannis so i would have really tannis. more tannis i, I wish, do love tannis i just feel like 
the storyline with the natives dropped off and it was so interesting and it feels like there was a good couple of seasons where you just didn't see that. I have to say the show is heavily like heavily heavily praised for its depiction of native people which I think is totally fair. Yeah. But I expected them to have more of a presence based on the degree of praise. Yeah. Yeah. That's I remember watch I watched a couple of episodes with my husband before like a couple years ago and it was the first couple seasons and they were in there so the natives were in there so much and then suddenly they're just gone and I thought I thought that was unfortunate because Mm -hmm. I thought it gave a lot of nuance and but still funny and like I, I mean it's representative of the community like it again it reminds me a lot of where I grew up like are yeah. I grew up like kind of there's quite a few Native American reservations around here. I went to school with a lot of Native people, and the there's a there's a tension mm-hmm. there um, for a variety of reasons and and a lot of misunderstanding and that kind of thing. And it felt meaningfully truthful um, to have episodes like Native Flu. I wish that we could have had as much of Tannis and her family as we did of the Dicks. Yeah, I like the dicks. Don't get me wrong. You sure do. <laughs> but I thought that the storylines with Tannis were more interesting. Really important question. Okay. Are the dicks just little freak perverts? I don't know. I truly I don't I, know. My my personal opinion is the dicks are little freak perverts. And but they know children. They know exactly what they're doing. I don't know. I have complicated feelings. And complicated <laughs> means I don't know. <laughs> I I want to believe that they're not. Honestly, I want to believe that they're I want to believe that they're not and they're just fucking dumb. (laughs) I love that for them too. Yeah, yeah. I just want to believe they're fucking dumb. Noah Dick looks like one of my old coworkers, and I think that's very funny. Which one? Like really old, like from Hollywood video. Oh god. Um you have anything else to say? No. It's a solid show. Mm. Yeah, it's a solid show. I liked it. Um I'm excited to see where the show goes. More Tannis. Why'd we get Shorzy when we could have had Tannis? Um, I hear Shorzy's good, though. I know. I've heard great things about Shorzy. My husband and I, he comes, he works nights, but he comes home for dinner and he's there for like a half hour or so. So we like a lot of half hour shows. So maybe I'll do um, Shorzy. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure it's like 25 minutes. Yeah. I've heard great things about it. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that and I'll let you know if you like it. Because I was dead on with Letter Kenny. You're yeah. going to think it's a, it's a, it's a good show. Mm-hmm. And, Josh is going to fucking love it. Yeah, and it, that is exactly I what happened. I was dead on. Um, so that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes. If you like this one, I suggest uh, our American Gods episode, which is kind of a strange recommendation, but I suggest it's Towns. It. Towns. Um, and also our What We Do in the Shadows episode, because that also does some similarly interesting things with like occupying this space between... Uh, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable comedy. Um, thank you to Emily June for doing our transcriptions of our episodes. Um, if you like this, consider supporting us on Patreon. A small donation per episode gets you access to bonus material, a uh, cool postcard in the mail, all kinds of stuff. Um, next time we're going to be talking about the Amber Spyglass in season three of His Dark Material. Are you excited about that? Oh my God. I'm reading, I'm like maybe a hundred and some pages into the, into the Amber Spyglass. That book goes so fucking hard. Uh, and after that, we're going to be doing Magic Mike XXL, which is great news for me. Fucking but budget. just that one. Just that one. We're not doing the and first one. We're not doing the first one. I don't give a shit about Magic Mike. 
I only care about Magic Mike XXL and maybe Magic Mike's last dance or whatever. It we'll is. see how things go. Yeah. But yeah. Magic, it's it's going to be about Magic Mike XXL. We are going to be talking about the hero's journey. <laughs> we are going to be talking about masculinity. We are going to be talking about pleasure. I oh, can't. Great. I, Mary, you don't even know <laughs> what awaits you. I want to watch it with you. Okay. 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 We, can we have that. to watch it together. Okay. Okay. Um, that's it. All right. Pitter patter. Let's get at her. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs>